Hello everyone, and welcome to the File Room Podcast, a podcast about the X-Files. That is also a desperate attempt to reconnect a friendship across the Atlantic. I'm Edwin Davis. And I'm Michaela Livingston-Banks. If you're new to the X-Files or watching it for the tenth time, watch along with us while we explore the dark corners of the American psyche. Via a TV show from the 90s. Hello, Michaela. How's it going? Very good. I'm sat here with a hot chocolate. What could be wrong? How's you? Absolutely nothing could be wrong with a hot chocolate. Uh, I'm sat with the tea, as is as is customary. That's my drink of choice. Yeah, I'm good. I, uh, you know, obviously it's getting towards the end of the year when we're recording this. People will probably be hearing this in January, I guess, or February, maybe, mm-hmm. whenever we start planning to release these. But it's sort of towards the end of 2023 when we're recording this. And I've been trying to catch up on some of the movies that I missed over the course of this year. I used to write about movies quite a lot. I used to blog about movies. And I still try to keep up now, even though I often don't write about them. And as a result of that, yesterday I watched my favourite film of 2023, which is a, a German movie called A Fire, which is about a German writer who goes to the seaside. Other stuff happens, but that's kind of the gist of it, if you want a summation of the most of, the, <laughs> okay. of what that movie's about. Um, but it's a great, wonderful movie. And then I saw Strong Contender for my least favourite film, of 2023 immediately afterwards which was the movie Bo is Afraid uh, starring Joaquin Phoenix um, directed by Ari Aster which is a three hour long surrealist comedy about a man who hates his mother and I had the same reaction to it that I've had to all of Ari Aster's movies his previous movies were Hereditary and Midsummer, which Mm. a lot of people really liked I really didn't. Um, I've never really liked any of his movies. But all of his movies, I have the exact same response, which is I'm on board with them for like 30 to 40 minutes where I'm like, okay, this guy's got a really strong visual style. He's getting good performances from actors. He's got saying some interesting things. And then you get to the hour, to like that 40 minute mark, and it's like, oh no, he's kind of said everything that he's going to say with this. Now he's going to keep saying it for another two hours. Oh, God. And that's the point at which I just lose interest. And this one was worse than those ones, I think, because the first two movies were horror movies. And there's just something a little, like, inherently more engaging about, like, something that's trying to scare you. Mm. Whereas a comedy that you're not enjoying and not finding funny (laughs) being that long is such torture. Um so yeah, so that was a real study in contrasts yesterday for me of being like the, the highs and the lows. Um, yeah. But yeah, I, I understand why some people, I, I've seen some people say Bo is Afraid, like one of their favourite films of the year. And I'm just, I'm kind of like, I can totally see that. It it was absolute hell for me. And, wow. Um, different things but, yeah. for different folks. Yeah. He's getting a reaction out of people and, you know, that's, I guess that's something. That is something. Last night I watched Landscape with Invisible Hand um, Mm -hmm. and I couldn't tell you why it's called that but I really (laughs) enjoyed it. I really enjoyed it. It was very sweet and I like um, that the aliens were, you know, quite different Uh, and, but it was very, it was very human and very Mm. earthly and everything. Um, 
despite the the aliens featuring um maybe because of the aliens featuring the the contrast there was really good um so i really enjoyed that and as a contrast i started watching kin on bbc iplayer which is like mm. a, about an irish kind of drug de- crime family drug dealing kind of situation and I, I watched it because it's got charlie cox in it and as you know i'm a big fan of daredevil mm-hmm. um sure. but 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 i could not get on with it um i don't know why it's probably Are you excited a... that daredevil's coming back what yeah they're doing a new daredevil thing for disney plus <gasps> you're joking no, I don't <gasps> know if the whole cast is coming back, but definitely Charlie. Cox Why did I not back. know about this? I usually might because I spend so much time watching Daredevil and reading Daredevil comics. Usually Google notifies me of these things, <laughs> but I've read so many. Probably because I've read so many of these, like is Daredevil coming back, and then it never is, and I've probably stopped reading the things. That's exciting. Yeah, because he he was. They had him in the most recent Spider-Man movie yeah. that came out a couple of years ago, and I think that obviously he was much beloved for playing that character. But I think the fact that people really were excited for him being in that movie convinced Disney, mm. yeah, we should give him another show. Oh well, I hope that um, what's his face, Vincent D'Onofrio, and other like there. I just hope the other folk are in it too, because like I think all of them together is like an ensemble. Hmm made it like it's not just char it's not by no means it's not charlie cox he's not magic sauce as it were (laughs) um yeah yeah, wow okay that's exciting when's it slated to come out uh probably this coming year i think 2024 i would i would imagine because it was announced quite a while ago but then the strikes happened so i think that probably put the brakes on a lot of things but i would imagine it probably comes out at some point this year that's exciting. Well, I know what I shall be feverishly Googling about later. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you for delivering um, probably the best news I've had all week. <laughs> oh. um, yeah. Um, and yeah, I, uh, I, I discovered an X-Files book uh, whilst I was repopulating bookshelves, um, oh, nice. having done Renault. Um, only to discover that it was my dad. My dad was a librarian um, and this was a library book. <laughs> It was due to be returned in, in what, May 2002 or something? <laughs> Whoops. Never mind. Yeah, just as long as you don't go back to Aberdeen, or at least not into that um, library, you'll be fine. Well, he's Otherwise, retired now. He's, oh. he's retired the now. Um, the library is still there, um, but he, he is retired. And I in fact, um, I messaged him about this. And he made a lot of um, X-Files puns in response, so I don't think he cares. Okay. Yeah, I'm just just wondering if the administration of the library might come after you. The shadowy give, conspiracy. I'll give. I'll give them. I'll give them the book back. It's fine. <laughs> but yes, speaking about the X-Files, of course, this is an X-Files podcast, and this week we're going to be talking about the episode. Uh, deep throat indeed do you want to do the synopsis yep so in this episode uh it's it's all centered around a um, military air force test pilot who goes who disappears after 
um, having what they refer to as a psychotic break and having like weird burns or a rash or something. So the cold opener is the mil military pr police breaking into this house um, and they find find this guy. He's cowering, shivering in a, in, in a room with in just his underwear and what looks like burns on him. Um, so this is the first time we see the iconic credits opening opening credits for the x-files and mm -hmm. hear mark snow's also iconic theme music which is um pretty cool uh and then we go to Mulder and scully meeting up in a bar presumably to avoid being overheard or whatever um to discuss this case and essentially Mulder has linked this up with other test pilots who have gone um, missing from the same uh, base um, and at the same time when uh, Mulder goes off to the toilet uh, there's a there's a man there who warns him to stay away from the case um, but obviously he doesn't say who he is or who he works for or anything but basically just says um, that Mulder and Scully you know, they'd they'd get into trouble if if they look into this case any more. Um, so yeah, then they go off to Idaho. Is it the Spud State? Yes, to is that uh, right. <laughs> yeah, the uh, the southwestern Idaho, as they say. So still still technically part of the Pacific Northwest. So definitely feels like, feels very similar to the pilot in a lot of ways. There's, it's hitting a lot of similar ideas. Yeah. In the, they are flying to a small town in the mid in the Pacific Northwest where strange things are happening and people are disappearing. Yeah, um, yeah, exactly. So they they go off and essentially, um, as it turns out, um, the wife reports her husband, the the pilot Budahas, missing or kidnapped. In fact, is what she's claiming, and so that's mm. why. And it's four months later, essentially. Um, saying that she's not seen him in four months. So, yeah, the episode starts out with Mulder and Scully meeting her, trying to find out more. Um, and then in doing so, a journal apparently an apparent journalist shows up um, and he mentions to them about, you know, the UFO nuts. And obviously Mulder's then, well, how do I get to speak to these people? Um, and, you know, then going to said base to to watch lights in the sky etc ensues and uh the x-files happen yeah like i said it, it does feel like is often the case with the second episode of a lot of series it, it feels in some ways like it is restating stuff that was established in the pilot it's not as bad as as some like mm. obviously it, it takes as read you probably understand who these two characters are and their relationship to each other so it doesn't feel the need to like re-establish too much of the character stuff but um it definitely feels like uh, it's a it, this episode is a little repetitive certainly if you watch it right after the pilot mm -hmm. but i do think it feels notably different in a lot of ways obviously the the intro is there and yep. that kind of makes it feel like oh this is the real x file starts here you know um when you hear that song and then you see like the distorted screaming face and and all that sort of deeply traumatizing weird imagery. stuff do you think like any of it has any particular meaning or was there just some like visual design person who just put a bunch of random stuff in whatever the equivalent of like photoshop was back then <laughs> i think it's it definitely feels more like a tone piece mm. in that it's saying we need a lot of imagery that 
conjures up the sense of the unknown, mm-hmm. of mystery, of horror, of you know Mulder and Scully diving into things that people are maybe not meant to know or that people are being held back from knowing. Mm-hmm. So I feel like a lot of the stuff they have there uh, is not necessarily tied to specific stuff in the show. Like, I, I remember as a kid watching it, always wondering when they were going to get to like the Invisible Man yeah. uh, walking around. And obviously there are eventually episodes where there are invisible people. Yeah. But like that's not, it's not really like a central important part of the show really. Um, it really is more about having a lot of scary strange phenomena that you can kind of like throw at people in short succession yeah. and let them know what sort of show they're in for yeah um which is definitely very effective yeah because you, you the, within you know 30 seconds or within like um you know three minutes of watching the episode you know entirely okay this this is what the show is going to be it's going to be about sort of terrible things happening to ordinary people and Mulder and scully trying to get to the bottom of it um the other way I think is that one of the key differences I think for me in terms of it compared to the pilot is it does feel a little more stylized visually. Mm. You know, like we talked about how the first one has a bit of a sense of naturalism to it, mm. whereas you know when they're in the bar, it's very smoky, mm-hmm. it's very atmospheric. It doesn't feel like uh, at the bar at the start, I should say, the the DC bar when they first meet. The the bar later on also has some of that, but it, it's not quite as sort of noirish. That's the thing it first mm. made remind me of. Uh, and there's definitely uh, when they're talking to the two stoner teenagers, paid played by uh, Seth Green, uh, of course, somewhat famous for various things he's done over the years, yep. and uh, Leilana Lindbergh, who is uh, very famous to fans of anime. She's the voice of Bulma in some of the early seasons of Dragon Ball Z and is oh, a wow. prolific, prolific voiceover actress in her own right. But um, I think it's fair to say Seth Green is probably the, pe- the person most people know yeah. um, from this episode. And Shot. certainly the first instance of something we will see a lot of sort of young actors cropping up in this show in, in small roles. I mean, Seth Green had been around for a little while, obviously. Mm. He was the star of Woody Allen's Radio Days, which came out like 10 years earlier. Oh, right, okay. Um, See, so I, he, I couldn't figure out because he, he was in Buffy and he was in Austin Powers mm-hmm. and I, I without Googling it, I couldn't figure out. I was pretty sure this was before that, but I couldn't, I yeah. didn't know what else he'd been in before that. Yeah, he'd been in, I forget the name of it, but that, like there had been a sitcom that he'd been on a few years earlier. So this is still like fairly early on mm. in his career. This is, is, is kind of one of the first roles he's doing post being, I mean, Child Star is, is probably stressing it too much because he wasn't like a, a household name like that Woody Allen film that he's the star on wasn't mm. like one of his bigger hits but uh, he was someone who was was working fairly steadily uh, yeah he wouldn't become like a really big name until 97 99 when he's in Austin Powers and he's on he's voicing Chris on Family Guy and all that oh, sort yeah. of stuff yeah um but yeah it was it was fun seeing him especially because you know he's playing this fairly stereotypical stoner character mm-hmm. and as he's talked about in interviews when he talked about it, he's never smoked weed at all at that point in his life Apparently. so he's kind of so he's like uh really playing up some of the stoner terry mm. stereotypes but uh, he's he's very fun like straight away he's yeah. like instantly recognizable as someone who's like a very engaging screen presence he yeah. sells the jokes really well yeah. i think it's very funny when uh Mulder asks shows him one of the pictures of the sort of triangular 
uh, aircraft that people have been taking photos of, and he says, did it look anything like this? And he says, no. It looks exactly like that. <laughs> just yeah. like he sells it really well, uh, and yeah, it's like it's it's not like a big role. He's only like four or five scenes, but um, yeah, he's really good. But but I was saying the the scene where Mordor and Scully are talking to them in the diner is very kind of atmospherically shot. It, mm-hmm. it definitely doesn't feel like their visual language is drawing from standard procedurals. They're trying to make it like a little kind of moodier and. Uh, with a greater sense of intrigue, mm. which uh, I think uh, comes across really well. Yeah. I'll tell you what is moodier in this episode, and that's Scully. Like, <laughs> she just seems constantly exasperated. Like, she's had enough of Mulder's shit. And I'm like, this is only your second case. You can't be this <laughs> bored by it all. Not bored, exasperated. That's kind of what I was kind of noting. She's, she's always like, oh, for God's sake, Mulder. And in the end... So that they go through this whole process of trying to figure out, um, you know, where, why this pilot is being kept away. Um, in the end, the pilot kind of shows up again. Um, but then it's like, well, why, why was he taken away? Um, is it got something? And the wife to... insists that it's not him. Yeah, it's not him. And then they're like, well, it must have something to do with what he was flying. And obviously at this point, it's, you know, kind of touching on the rumors of um, their flying. If if not actual alien um, craft, you know, UFOs, then military built aircraft using alien technology. Um, and so obviously Mulder has to go in and find all this. But anyway, in the end... Basically, they go home because Scully's like, I've had enough of this shit. We're going uh, <laughs> with with mainly inconclusive um, evidence again, except for they they both, both Scully and Mulder, see lights dancing in the sky. Um, mm. And Scully's like, um, oh, maybe it's just lasers. And then, of course, <laughs> they go up through the clouds and it's like, oh, yeah, maybe not. Um. Yeah, have you ever seen anything in the sky that you couldn't explain, like that or anything else? I I have a very strong memory of when I was a kid going to stay with my grandparents in in Romley, Greater Manchester, where I remember being in the front room of their house trying to get to sleep, and just the room being flooded with light. Now. In hindsight, I think it was probably just like a light sensor of the neighbors, mm. like next door, came on probably because there was a cat in the garden or something. <laughs> but at the time, I didn't know that they had that, mm. and like, I did, probably didn't even realize that was a technology that existed. Mm. So it was this. So that's one of those things where I have a very clear memory of light flowing in. Um, certainly, sometimes when I'm out and about walking in Florida, I'll see like lights streaking across the sky, which I think is usually just like a satellite or something. Yeah. But the, those are always kind of like weird when you see something like really streaking across quickly and you, you have that sense of, did I just, did I just see something or, or yeah. am I imagining it? So like, I think the, the gap between what you see and what you think you yeah. see, I think is, is where that tends to live for me. But I've never, I've never seen anything like that was truly inexplicable in the sky. Yeah. Not like what they were seeing. Um, no. I've I've definitely had a couple things where, like, I remember one time 
where was I at Loch Ness or something like camping I may had been have been drinking but anyway went out <laughs> went because it does seem like a bit of a dream but um yeah went out and I think there was a meteor shower so we were like out what it was bloody cold we were out watching um the meteors but at one point one of the lights one it was moving relatively slowly like it had been um a satellite but it, it kind of curved and changed mm. direction and of course now i'm like it didn't it seemed like it was going too fast to be a plane but you know too slow to just be a meteorite or something um and in the end, I was like, yeah, they probably move satellites out of the way for things, maybe. So I sort of was just like, meh. And then the other one I remember, also drunk. I feel like there's a theme to these kind of stories. <laughs> but my memory of it was just like what seemed like a, a ludicrously large white orb in the sky. These days, when I go out to my back garden to take the dog out for his evening poop, um, <laughs> You know, often I'll have a look up the sky if it's clear sky um, and see what, what stars and stuff are about. And the planets are bloody huge. Um, <laughs> so these days I'm a bit like, oh, it's probably just Jupiter or Venus or something looking quite luminous in, in the clear Scottish sky, which, you know, I was out in Scotland. Um, so, yeah, I feel like if I'd seen anything of the ilk, like what Mulder and Scully were apparently saying, I'd be like... Um, <laughs> what? Because mm. obviously yeah. it was dancing around, but somehow she's like, "Yeah, it could be anything." Yeah, she does say, um, "Just because I can't explain it doesn't mean I'm going to believe they're UFOs," which I think does kind of cut to the heart of her character. Like until she has like a definite explanation, she's not going to leap to the idea that it's this alien. Yeah, so and then, that, that's at least consistent. Yes, and, and, and it's in terms of her. Like you say, her her moodiness, it 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 does make sense in that Mulder doesn't tell her that there's a UFO alien angle to it uh, when they're going. He yeah. presents it as being, oh, there's these mysterious these pilots have been going missing. We should like look into it. And then only when he gets there is that like they go to that bar and she's like, this is a UFO thing, isn't it? And she gets like, I think she gets annoyed that he doesn't clue her into it. Which uh, so so I I understand why she would be she would be annoyed at him that she, he's kind of got her to, you know, the middle of nowhere, Idaho under false pretenses. Yeah. Um, so it does make sense, but it, but yeah, there is a, a definitely, I think a stronger sense of antagonism between the two of them mm-hmm. in this episode than premium, but like a playful one. Um, and I think that really comes out in like, there's a scene where, um, where he, he says, you know, that he thinks that the, they might be planes being built with, uh, alien technology and she kind of gives him this like this like really quick little smile that is a real kind of like moment that ha- to me is like this guy <laughs> again where where you kind of where she's she kind of can't believe it but also she is a little charmed by him because obviously he's like she's so earnest in his obsession about this stuff so um but yeah yeah it definitely feels like their relationship has progressed from the pilot in that they are now close enough that she can get really angry (laughs) yeah like when the journalist dude mentions um you know the ufo fanatics or however he refers to them she's like she like sigh roll her eyes 
just like really must you must you mention this to him <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's real red flag to a bull stuff as yeah soon as it, but obviously it i i, the, I you kind of get the sense he probably knew some of that stuff anyway um yeah he, he had some inkling that there was something going on um yes yeah, so this all revolves around ellen's air force base which is a fictional air force base but it obviously has uh, some uh basis in the various air force bases uh, across the u.s most famously area 51 where there is like a a great sense of mystery around these things these things that don't appear on maps but everyone know they're there mm. because you go there and there's fences telling you not to go any further and that have a great deal of mystique built up around them um also the episode name checks the aurora project mm-hmm. which was a long rumored uh, project on the part of the u.s military and the air force to create experimental aircraft which i think the consensus is it's like not a thing that 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 was like a single project like someone that like aurora was like an internal term that that um leaked out but it's not necessarily tied to a specific aircraft although none of this stuff is declassified so no one can really say for certain what it means but so this is so that's real so scully refers to the aurora project and that's like a real thing it it's a real thing that people were talking about at the time there's like it's a it's a real kind of like myth around the the u.s air force that in the 80s they were working on experimental aircraft and the silhouettes that you see of the aircrafts when Mulder is taken into the hangar at the end yeah uh they do match like the um drawings that people did of what they thought the experimental aircraft Mm. they do look very like this that whole kind of triangular thing it's it's very similar to the whole stealth bomber thing yeah which is yeah, I think which is real, right? That's not like so. Yeah, the stealth bomb is a real thing. Yeah. Yeah. I, th- yeah, I think um one of the stories around what Aurora might have been was it might have just been a term used to refer to some of the stuff around the stealth bomber, but mm. it kind of got built up into this much bigger thing of the idea that it was like hyper experimental, something that no one had seen at all. Yeah. Um I mean, are we surprised it, are we surprised that the military has R and D going on? Like no, is that no. that wouldn't be a secret or surprising? I suppose the thing is what it's capable of. Yeah, because like the whole thing around the U.S. military um, are what are known as Skunk Works projects, which essentially are and Skunk Works is like a term that's used more broadly to like anytime you have like a tech company or something that has a team that just kind of squirrel away on mm. experimental stuff. Um, there are various like Skunk Works within the um, the military are sort of departments that are kind of just told to work on various experimental projects to mm. see if they can develop any useful technology. So that stuff definitely exists, but obviously the secrecy around it is so like all-encompassing and vast mm. that you you can't that, that's why mysteries grow uh, that's why uh, mythologies mm. grow up around them, you know, because people are like well we don't they, they won't tell us anything. This stuff's not going to get declassified possibly ever but so we'll just fill in the gaps ourselves yeah exactly um one of the other things that's really interesting about this episode in relation to real life stories around um area 51 and similar things is there is a real documented case of people trying to sue the u.s government because they worked at area 51 and were exposed to uh toxic chemicals 
um, and mm. their lawsuit essentially being closed off because they said that the things they were working on were t- too vital to national security for any details to ever be released, mm. so you couldn't try them. Um, so there were a bunch of people who died of cancer oh because they were exposed to all these chemicals and then they could never get their day in court. I don't know if that story had broken at the time this episode was um, released mm. because I, the earliest reference I could see to it was a Washington Post story from 1997. So obviously that's a few years later, um, but it may have been in the ether at the time because or, or it may just have made sense to Chris Carter that the idea that if you have these kind of things that are so secret, the lives of the people who work on them ultimately become um, subservient to national security and they, people just become, um, you know, they, they become uh, completely expendable and you go to whatever lengths you can to cover them up. Yeah. Well, I mean, this is exactly a conversation that Mulder and Scully have. They're, they're sort of debating, um, whether or not it's it's worth looking into, Scully makes a point like, shouldn't a government be allowed to do research, whatever? I can't remember exactly mm. how she words it. And, and Mulder basically makes the, the point of like, at what cost? Because obviously yeah. Budahas is one of, you know, a bunch of pilots and, you know, they also make, there's kind of a bit of a moral thing going on with this as well. They're trying to excuse it of, as you know these men have volunteered themselves Mm. into this job knowing what it entails um so yeah i'm sure a moral philosopher would pick that apart more but anyway the, the there's there's elements of of asking that overall kind of ethical question of at what cost should a government be doing and then covering up these sorts of things and I think the episode also has the 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 journalist who isn't actually a journalist, he works for the US Army, vocalise that at the end when Mulder, you know, holds, not Mulder, uh, Scully holds him at gunpoint in order to get Mulder back, mm-hmm. where he says, this, he says essentially the secrecy that we employ is equal to the dangerous national security. Uh, it is you who has acted inappropriately mm-hmm. here. So it's like he, that argument from the government's side of it or the army's side of it is very clearly articulated through him there where he's saying like the stuff we're working on is like so paramount to the safety of the nation at least in our perspective that you know we have every right to um to hide it from the public and we have every right to remove anyone who endangers it yeah um i was gonna say and so so Mulder at this point has broken into um this uh air force ellen's air force base as they're as they're calling it um and he's walked for hours it looks like um Mm. and then he sees you know a triangular aircraft of some description i do like that shot where he's like silhouetted by this light that's coming at him i less enjoyed 
the uh the special effects of of the the aircraft i feel like maybe it would have been having said that the the visual effects in the pilot were actually really quite good the the visual effects in this episode not so good i'm like i might have preferred not seeing that at all actually but um yeah anyway so he's seen this then he thinks he can outrun vehicles like road vehicles (laughs) um but invariably gets caught um and injected with something anyway he comes out um afterwards and he can't remember anything um similar to the pilot who you know buddha has he reappears the wife says it's not him and you know they ask him a bunch of questions and he's he seems to be able to answer stuff about sports and his children and whatever but when asked anything about um things he should know as a pilot he he just can't remember and i uh so speaking of experimental technology i'm like were they neuralized Mm. (laughs) and you know also the men in black kind of show up in this episode too you know a bunch of men in sunglasses and black suits you know come and take uh the evidence that they have collected which you know there seems to be a bit of a pattern here they collect a bit of evidence and then it gets it gets taken away um so yeah the other thing i enjoyed about this uh that kind of um series of scenes is that scully gets to be a right badass Mm. yeah because she figures out there's something shady about the reporter Mm -hmm. and but she has left her gun behind in the hotel room so she like breaks in like hops into his car before he can do anything searches for anything that would identify him and finds his gun and his badge that says he works at the air force base um which is real oversight of him to yeah, leave that in the glove depart- glo- uh, compartment like that. And then she uh, jams her thumb into his eye <laughs> yeah. so that when he tries to reach for her and then she gets out the other side of the car and then, like I said, holds him at gunpoint yeah. and then forces him to drive to the Air Force Base so she can get Mulder back. And yeah, it is the first instance that she's really had. Because like, she holds a gun a bit in the pilot, mm. but for the most part they are... Both of them really are that you know they just use it to kind of like point at people, mm. and then they never get to. There's never like any real sense that a gunfight is going to go off. Whereas here, obviously, she is. She gets to be a real threat to the reporter, which is yeah, is great to see because it, it's a different mode for her, other than being sort of, you know, the analytical person who's trying to work through this stuff, which is is mainly what she's been doing so far over the the, the first two episodes. Yeah. Well, and then we finish we finish the episode with um, what is also becoming a pattern, you know, an equals to uh, Scully's typing out her final report and um, once again kind of reporting that it's uh, inconclusive and and things like that. But then Mulder's out running around the track, so it's nice to learn that he likes uh, cares about fitness. Mm-hmm. <laughs> But this sh- this character, this unnamed kind of informant character shows up again um, saying that their lives are in danger. Um, and Mulder's like, why, are, why would you help us? And, you know, he's like, I'm interested in the truth. Um, presumably the truth getting out because he knows the truth, presumably. Um, mm. And they have this exchange which is like, how comes people who believe in these things um, aren't dissuaded by all the evidence to the contrary, uh, to which Mulder gives a pretty um, tautologist reply of like, well, 
it's not very convincing. <laughs> well, that doesn't really <laughs> explain why you don't believe it. Um, and then the final sort of word is, you know, Mulder saying, they're here, aren't they? And the guy replying, uh, they've been here for a very long time. And it's like, ooh. So then it's just a little, little something of, I don't know, not mystery. Presumably Mulder's talking about aliens and this guy's admitting that they've been here for a long time. So mm. if you were like, ah, oh, can't be bothered with all this inclusive, inconclusive stuff then there's a little cherry on top to hopefully make you want to come back for the next one yeah i think what's really impressive about this episode in terms of like we we're talking about in the first episode how everything moves like really fast which this one does as well you know it's very pacey mm -hmm. and i think what's really interesting about this one is how even though the character who is who becomes known as Deep Throat. I don't think they refer to him as Deep no, Throat. No, but the episode. In the episode. No, no, no. Because when I was watching it again, I watched it a second time, and I was specifically seeing if they did that. So I think the only reason why is because one, the episode's called Deep Throat, <laughs> and two, because it's like because it was like a what it was the Watergate informant, right? Was referred to as Deep Throat. Is that right? That yes, that is correct. Mark Felt, right? Who yeah, is the um, the real uh, Watergate. Uh, it was the real deep throat who you know leaked details to the Washington Post to Woodward Wood and Bernstein, yeah, um, and whose identity was not known for many many years until either after he died or or sort of towards the end of mm. his life. He it was never admitted that it was him. Um, he I believe he was like essentially the acting director of the FBI at the time because oh. Edward Hoover, J Edgar Hoover had died. He was certainly very high up in the. Um, FBI leadership right um, and I, I always will remember his name because shortly after he died a film came out starring Liam Neeson as Mark Felt and the title was Mark Felt the man who took down the White House and I'll always remember that because in my head I always sing it to the theme tune from Sweeney Todd so in my head it's Mark Felt the man who took down the White House so that's why <laughs> that's why I will always remember the Mark Felt that's one, that's one way of remembering things. <laughs> yes, with with apologies to Stephen Sondheim. Um, <laughs> but yeah, yeah. So that that is where obviously the the name comes from. It's an allusion to that. Also, mm. the character I think owes a lot to the character of X from um, JFK, the Oliver Stone movie, played by Donald Sutherland, who is a similar kind of shadowy figure who like shows up to talk to to kevin costner as jim garrison telling him details about the conspiracy mm -hmm. in similar kind of elliptical terms um well but, but and, yeah, so, and that that will come back to be referenced uh, again in the x-files yes um but uh like, like i was saying what I, I find really uh, impressive about this even though jerry hardin's only in like two scenes really um from those scenes you get quite a lot yeah. of the broad contours of the conspiracy. Obviously, you get the idea that aliens are here and maybe they have influenced human civilization in a big way. Mm -hmm. But but also, from what he says, you can kind of infer, okay, so he is part of the conspiracy. He's, he's probably quite important in it because he seems to know a lot. But also, there seems to maybe be some sort of power struggle within the conspiracy if he's mm. being willing to come and talk to Mulder and maybe he sees Mulder and Scully as a way to kind of gain an advantage mm. uh, over it. And yeah, it's just like really economical, but also really evocative. 
you know you, they don't need they don't do a lot but by the end of this episode you have like a really good sense of what's going on you don't get a lot of specifics but it, it, it definitely gives you enough to go on to think okay there's something big going on here and Mordor and Scully have kind of stumbled into the middle of it yeah I did uh sort of ponder like seeing as this guy has no real proof of who he is or who he works for or anything like that there's none of that you you, you just have to take him at his word it was like this could just be any guy who mm-hmm. happens to know their names and roughly where they work. Um, and uh, I was saying this to, to John, and John was like, well, he's probably just in HR, isn't he? Like, <laughs> he's jealous of the agents and wants to mess with them. <laughs> I kind of would love it if someone could please make, like, some sort of, not not a remake, but, like, some sort of um, X-Files spin-off alter reality type thing where everything's much more mundane and it's a comedy that i would find that amusing kind of like i can't remember what the show was called but there was a sitcom that aired a couple of years ago which was set within like the dc universe and it was essentially like the claims department you have to deal with all of the 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 mess that is caused by all the destruction that superheroes do which i want to say starred maybe vanessa Vanessa hudgens or Mm. someone there was some there was some former maybe ashley tisdale i get the feeling it was some former um high school musical actor who was in it um but yeah, like that that show didn't last very long, but it definitely sounded like a fun, a fun idea See, that you, you could play a lot with. Yeah, maybe this is the sort of thing that works well, you know, like on a YouTube like a YouTube thing because mm. you know, there's a lot of, you know, um real doctor reacts to house and real lawyer lawyers suits and um real physicist reacts to don't look up and all of these are all real videos on youtube go look at them um so maybe it's one of these kind of like things where it'd be funny as a one-off but if you tried to make um an ongoing arc out of something like that it might get a little bit stayed but um anyway i like i liked that idea um we may well be proved wrong in the next episode this isn't jerry from hr um (laughs) (laughs) this is in fact a real government informant I think also one thing the episode does really, really well, you talked about the man in black, men in black scene mm. earlier, and obviously, yeah, once Mulder is sca- found on the base, you know, he, he's kind of like roughly grabbed, thrown into an ambulance and wheeled through the hangar, and he's, uh, you know, he has his memory of the last few hours wiped, mm-hmm. it seems. One of the things I think it does really well is it really establishes how powerful the forces that Mulder and Scully are dealing with are, because... You think, oh, they work for the FBI. You know, like, the FBI is a powerful organization. Mm-hmm. No one's going to mess with FBI agents. The fact that the they are so openly kind of willing to, like, manhandle them. You know, they punch him when he asks questions. Mm-hmm. That, you know, they could very easily kill mm. Mulder if they wanted to. Um, I think it, it does a lot through just those handful of scenes to say... Yeah, these people are extremely powerful and they consider themselves above the law mm. because when these two agents of the US government show up, they have no like compunction about um, 
telling them to get the fuck out of town. Mm. Um, which also, I think, comes into, like, Scully's reaction at the end once they go and see the wife and again, and, and she's basically, like, saying, oh, no, everything's fine now, and, and kind of, like, has a an air of fear to mm-hmm. her, as if, like, she's, it's clear that she's been got to. Yeah. Like, Scully's just kind of like, no, we have to get out of here. This this situation is really, really bad, and, and she's both frustrated with the way it's turned out, but also, I think, there is real fear mm-hmm. in her now that they're dealing with, like, very serious people who would disappear them without uh, without really any compunction. Yeah. Well, and I think at some point in the episode, Scully says something along the lines of the government isn't above the law that, you know, they can't just hide information. And <laughs> for me, that was like a laugh out loud moment. It's like, of course they can. Otherwise, mm. there's no, th- this TV series has nothing to go on. <laughs> but it was like, oh, how naive. <laughs> Yeah, I do think that there is that that's a kind of a fun dynamic that comes back over and over is that I think Scully has a belief in institutions mm-hmm. that is constantly thrown into question, whereas Mulder is like a lot more like jaded about that stuff. And, yeah. and obviously that comes into like the conspiratorial mindset yeah. that he has, which is if he believes that these things are being hidden by the government, of course, he's not going to trust the official story. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, I think that's a fun dynamic. So well, on the one hand, like she's seen as being like the rational one who believes in science and he's kind of like the airy fairy believer who will like jump to supernatural stuff. But on the other hand, like, yeah, like you say, she has that naivety of thinking that we live in a world of rules mm-hmm. and everyone's going to abide by them and everything will work out. And Mulder lives in a world where he's like, yeah, like the rules only apply to some people yeah there are there are people for whom what's the phrase there are some for whom the law protects but does not bind and others it binds but does not protect and like he kind of has that insight i think ingrained into him from just the things that he's seen and the roadblocks that he must have experienced in all of his investigations over the years well yeah so it seems for an episode titled deep throat um, given the sort of connection to the very real world conspiracy, I guess, that was Watergate, um, mm-hmm. you know, to be kind of making that point that maybe you can't always trust institutions or at least individuals with it. Well, you know, individuals within institutions, but individuals who might have a huge amount of power and authority, you know, especially if it goes right to the top, as it were, you know, it's not a given that you can always trust these things. Um, Mm. But like, I'm guessing, so, you know, Watergate at this point, you know, we're in the 90s. uh, This must have been written and shot in 92, 93, I guess. Um, Yeah, it would have been... So this would have aired in September 93, so it was probably filmed in, like, July of 1993. Yeah. Because obviously they would have gone into production um, after the pilot was picked up, so they would have been filming over the, over the summer. Yeah. So were there, like, more, for that time, were there more contemporary examples of things watergate-esque type thing i mean there's there's all sorts of gates these days <laughs> um mm. but were, were there kind of more contemporary versions of these kind of scandals going on uh yeah the probably the biggest one 
prior to this in terms of like a big government conspiracy would have been the Iran-Contra scandal in which the US government was shown to have been um, selling weapons to Iran mm. so that they could then sell them to the Contras in right, Nicaragua yeah. to wage war against the um, the elected government there and kind of like funding the civil war there. Mm. I believe that's right. Iran-Contra Iran is one of those scandals that I've, I've looked into previously but never like in depth. But essentially like there was lots of illegal weapons sales right. going on that, that a bunch of people in the Reagan administration got in trouble for but did not like see real justice for right there was a handful of people like oliver north who kind of were became the figureheads for it but it never really touched like the higher echelons but that was definitely a case where the government was doing shady things and then there was a cover-up um but the but watergate is really the kind of totemic um conspiracy certainly it would have been for chris carter because he would have been a, a child while that was like dominating the news where you know that people the president you know had and his re-election campaign had you know engaged in these like really shady tactics yeah. to damage their opponents and then devoted huge amounts of time and resources to covering it mm. up um so i think that one probably is like the the huge one that would be would have informed um carter specifically and people of his generation yeah uh, so do you uh, think guess, it was sorry. do you think it was that that inspiration of of Chris Carter and people of his his age his generation then rather than well I guess obviously there would have been a feeling left over for them at that time but I mean just as opposed to there being a sense of feeling at that particular time when it was coming out that that the X-Files was tapping into that whole kind of um, distrust, trust no one, conspiratorial kind of mindset. Oh, no, yeah, that definitely was growing at that point in the 90s, but I think it's like a long hangover of Watergate where you get people who would have been like teens Mm. or or kids growing up and being disillusioned by that. So they, they kind of like grow up at this point, they're in their 20s and 30s, they instinctively don't trust institutions. Mm. There's also a growing like militia movement happening in the US around about this time where you have lots of people thinking that the US government is going to like impose martial law. So you get things like the Ruby Ridge massacre, which I think would have happened or the Ruby Ridge siege uh, would have happened like the year before this or around about the same sort of time. A few years later, you have, you know, Timothy McVeigh blowing up the Oklahoma mm. Uh, city doing the Oklahoma City bombing um, and to be clear like obviously Timothy McVeigh was like a, a right wing psychopath and like his his fears about the government were not like founded in reality yeah. but there was a general sense of distrust of the government and of institutions that was growing around that time and I think a lot of it is just like Watergate festering mm it kind of being revived a little bit by um, Iran-Contra. And then, oh, yeah, we talked about it a few times, but um, Oliver Stone's JFK, I think, is a huge part of this because that was a movie that was a huge critical and commercial success that I think was a lot of people's first introduction to the idea that, you know, maybe there was something weird happening with mm. the, um, the JFK assassination. Or if they knew that there were 
conspiracy theories about it. It was, you know, one of the few really big mainstream articulations of it. And I think that introduced a lot of people to that and probably sent people off on various conspiratorial rabbit holes that way. So I, I think it's a bunch of different things, but there was definitely a sense of paranoia in growing a growing sense of paranoia around the government in the 90s that uh, manifested in a lot of different ways for a lot of different people yeah um, and then on like in terms of like more left-wing kind of circles I think you get lots of people like having concerns about various um, globalist obviously that word's tainted now but like globalization mm-hmm. is probably the word i should be saying about like various things around globalization and the, the idea that you know maybe it's going to really hurt the working class and things like that mm. in the sense that there is um a effort from the various ruling elites of different countries to kind of find a way to enrich the wealthiest parts of society at the expense of every at the um expense of everyone mm. so yeah so yeah there, there's definitely a lot of um, conspiratorial thinking, some justified, some not, mm. happening uh, around about this time. And the, de- the X-Files is definitely tapping into this, that stuff, which is why uh, I think it, it over the next couple of years, it really kind of like grows in popularity because there is something in the zeitgeist that it is addressing that a lot of other TV shows uh, isn't, are not. Yeah. And it's funny, I'm just sort of trying to reflect back to... So obviously I wouldn't wouldn't have seen this particular episode until I was a bit older, but obviously th- this kind of distrust of, of government and institutions and stuff like this is obviously a theme that runs throughout the X-Files. And so when I did start watching, when I would have been about, you know, 10 or so, um, yeah, what the hell would I have known of this? Like, why would... Because, <laughs> like, it just seems like such a... I guess it's it's a compelling story anyway um and you know you're trying to look into mysteries and things like that that I think even if you don't have those kind of um that kind of mindset and that distrust and it's not tapping into that kind of more um emotive side of things of of that kind um it's still an enjoyable story to watch, I think, and I and I assume it must have been for ten year old me who was, you know, naive to that kind of stuff. Certainly at that time, mm. I definitely was. Um, yeah, that is my I conclusion. Think- there, simply, it's a good story, <laughs> regardless. I think as well that the kind of last point I have on this, which I think is interesting, is. It's interesting that the specific institution that it's telling you to be distrustful of is the army, because Mm. that feels like something that would not happen, you know, 10 years after this, after 9-11 happens, after like the the world, um, after the war in Iraq starts, there's like such, in America in particular, there's such like a, 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 a... effort to talk about you know like you got to support the troops you got to be patriotic you got all this sort of stuff so the idea that which i think has faded somewhat now i think people Mm. are a little more wary um because of various crimes that the army the u.s army committed in iraq Mm. that you you know you can't trust the official story of the um the of what the army tell you and things like that uh 
but it did strike me as very interesting that that's the the institution here that's being told explicitly you can't really trust them they're probably doing shady stuff and again i think probably a lot of that comes up from chris carter growing up in the the 70s Mm. the fact that he's probably hearing about things like the my lai massacre uh in vietnam and and stuff like that where you know there was a general sense of like the u.s army it's made up of a lot of people who go to serve because they want to serve their country and you know they feel that's the best way to service also it is full of people who will like commit horrendous crimes (laughs) and Mm -hmm. uh some the the institution itself will often go to great pains to hide those facts from the public um and Yeah. yeah again i think it it definitely probably has a lot to do with the specific micro generation that he belongs to that, that like that's probably informing some of his thinking about these things yeah so um here's me going into this uh thinking like oh what are we going to learn about the time but i think actually we're learning more about chris carter's chris mm-hmm. carter and chris carter's generation um and that sort of thing though um just to touch on technology we did see a microfilm thing which i used to mm. enjoy again my dad was a librarian they had these in the library i used to enjoy whizzing through them pretending like i was doing important research um but yeah and when uh, they get Mulder and scully in their uh, car and they're destroying the evidence you know they take the camera yes. and they expose the, fi- the, the film. film yes okay. <laughs> i was thinking god that's that's a lot more dramatic than if you're doing it with just additional camera and they're just going Delete, You'd, delete, delete. Well, delete. no, you would just <laughs> smash it, though, wouldn't you? You would just yeah, true, throw yeah. it on the tarmac and have at it. Um, well, you, you don't know if they maybe uh, got the SD card hidden somewhere. So I guess there's advantages to digital over yeah. analog there. Or maybe, yeah, and it, obviously being a fictional TV show, maybe they could have, like, some fancy wand that they just wave over the car <laughs> and all the electromagnetic computer stuff is, is broken. It's wiped. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, on that note. Yes, thank you all for listening to this episode of the Far Room podcast. Uh, I've been Edwin Davis. I'm Michaela Livingston Banks. Our music is by Lionel Cassio. Uh, if you would like to get in contact with us, you can find us on Twitter, where we are at the Far Room Pod. And also, you can email us at the Far Room Podcast at gmail.com. Uh, please rate us, review us. Uh, recommend it to your friends you know give us a like all the usual things help us uh, grow our audience because we're kind of like getting this podcast off the ground we'll be back next week where we'll be talking about a very different episode these first two um, one of the most iconic episodes of the series it's kind of incredible to think it's I coming know. up so soon so excited uh, the episode is of course squeeze but We'll be talking about that next time. Uh, So it's goodbye from me. And bye from me.